Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we do deep dives into investing, ongoing real estate news and market updates. We talk about how to structure deals, how to apply different strategies, grow your portfolio, deal with your tenants, build your power team, and more. We try to give you everything you need to become the best real estate investor you can be. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Go back and check out the other episodes. And if you are a regular listener of the show, welcome back. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent, real estate investor and co-host of this podcast, and I'm joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by my good friend, Daniel Foch. Dan, what are we talking about today? Today, we got an interview. You're not just joined by me. You are joined by myself and Sasha Kakuz from Greybrook Investing, uh, Greybrook Realty Partners, sorry, and uh, and Greybrook Securities. Greybrook.com is their website. If you are interested in, in learning more or potentially investing with them, send us an email to the show and we'll make an introduction to their uh, incredible team. I'm just going to read a couple of things off their website. Um, for those of you who are interested in, in getting an introduction from them, we did do an episode. This is Sasha's second time on the show. Uh, episode 24, I think it is, Nick. And um, It is, yeah. Yeah, and it, awesome, awesome professional real estate investor managing billions of dollars of asset, assets under management. Um, somebody I, I really love talking to about real estate. And I, I feel like I could sit and, and listen and have those conversations that we've been having for these for these episodes with Sasha um, for hours and hours on end. Um, so quickly from their website, um, we manage equity on behalf of both individual and institutional investors in over 30 countries. Our unique approach is to make each investment individually rather than pooling them in a typical fund structure. This allows us to work with more flexibility with our investors and create a customized approach to our strategy that can more closely align with their individual investment objectives, risk tolerances, and desired time horizons. I mean, if you do a little bit of research, you'll you'll learn pretty quickly that these guys are the real deal. Um, they've they've made an exceptional impact on the skyline in Toronto. Very very well regarded in the in the Canadian real estate space, and, uh, and we're, we're they're they're now making impacts and changes on other skylines, other notable skylines uh, with better weather down south as well. So. If you're interested in cross-border investing, they, they can help you there as well. What city is that, Nick? That is Miami, I believe. It reminds me of that Will Smith song, actually. Um, Welcome to... Yeah, you know how it goes. Are you, are you going to sing it for us? No, or, I would or? never. I would never put our listeners through that. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that's a, an amazing project. Uh, it's a super tall that they're building, which is, which is an incredible feat on its own. Um, Worth checking out the uh, the Waldorf Astoria in Miami is a project that they've they've funded and and, and are managing. Um, but without further ado, uh, rather than listening to me and Nick brag on their behalf, uh, you can you can get the real <laughs> thing and listen to our conversation that we had with Sasha from Greybrook, and we'll hopefully have him back on a quarterly basis. So please let us know if you enjoyed this episode and and found value in it. First and foremost, thanks for having us back. You're welcome. We are lucky enough that every time we've come here, it's been a pretty beautiful day out here, nice and sunny, which is which we haven't seen the sun here in Ontario for it's minus a hundred, but it's sunny. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, look, obviously, you know we we've done this before. You're one of two repeat guests, and only one of four guests, I'm so honored. you should be. Um, 
but we, you know, when the first time we were here, we, uh, I think it, it was a great interview. Um, did really well in the numbers. It's one of our actually most listened to episodes. But our audience has probably grown from about 15,000 monthly back then to about 50,000 now. Good growth. So, yeah, it's, it's you not You should have me back more it's often. Yeah, right? yeah, we should. <laughs> um, so we wanted to come back, kind of do a bit of a refresher, obviously get maybe some market insights from a guy like you that's that's pretty tapped in. So we've just got a couple of questions. Um, let's run through them and see where, see where we end up. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, so for the newcomers who weren't on, you know, weren't listening for your first episode, could you just give us a, a bit of an idea of what you do, what Greybrook does, and sort of how that functions as an alternative for people looking to get exposure to real estate outside of direct investing in property? Sure. Uh, so Greybrook, uh, we are a private equity investor. So we invest equity. We're not a, a, a lender or mortgage company as is more common uh, in, in real estate, I think, in most cases. We are almost exclusively development-based investors. So we like to get involved right from land acquisition through to completion of really any type of housing, rental housing uh, and for sale housing of all types, condominiums, right through to single family homes, but all larger scale. So we're not doing like one-off homes. They'd be, you know, larger communities and, and things of that nature. It's our preference to be involved. It's a different way to participate in real estate. We think of it as a manufacturing process almost, right? It's a margin-based business we're mm-hmm. in, as opposed to looking at, you know, the question I get asked a lot is, you know, do you expect prices to go up? And, and you know, I think over time, the answer is probably I do, but our model doesn't really rely on prices to increase. What we rely on is margins to be available to us. And typically, if nobody's selling and building homes, over time, the cost structure adjusts as well. And lo and behold, you have margin again. So there's there's ways to make money in the development process because you just need housing. That That's just a fundamental need uh, for our growing market. Um, I think what makes us different than typical vehicles that you would see out there to invest in real estate for individuals or things that they do on their own to create value is it's passive to them. So a lot Mm. of people who like to invest in real estate, like to invest in the hard assets. Oftentimes that means they do the work, right? They'll they'll invest in a home, they'll do a reno or they'll buy something to rent. uh, And they're an active manager of that rental property. We, effectively are a vehicle that they can invest some of their passive capital. So a lot of times for individual investors, they have registered plans, TFSAs, things that um, normally would not be available to them to buy hard real estate. They could actually get exposure to hard real estate on a large scale with, uh, with a vehicle like ours. So that's kind of the key difference. In the firm today, uh, we employ about 90 people. We manage about $30 billion worth of development. So wow. Uh, and across North America. So we kind of tend to focus on Southern Ontario in development as well as different markets in the U.S. Uh, and then we also have a business where we buy apartments. So it's all residential. That's kind of our preference. We look at it as a very stable part of the real estate suite of asset classes. Love it. Great explanation. few things I want to touch on there. Um, you know, everyone should go back and listen to the first episode. I believe we titled it Own real estate without or invest in real estate without owning yeah Yeah. so perfect description of what you just said right everyone throws around this idea we get these calls all the time you know i want to i want to make money through real estate passively okay well if you're buying one duplex good luck that doesn't exist it's not passive at all right it's not passive until you get to that scale what you're essentially offering is 
alleviating people having to go through that scaling of the business and being able to put any type of lump sum of money into a essentially bit of a de-risked portfolio because you are hedging against because you've got larger projects and there's through a vehicle such as Greybrook. I know that you guys do cross-border stuff, as you mentioned, stuff down in the States. Here's a good question for you. What's the outlook of the Canadian real estate market, but also just the North American real estate market? Because you have your foot on both sides of the border. Today is Wednesday, February the 1st. We know the Fed just raised another 25 points. We know two weeks ago, we just raised another 25 points. With a conditional pause, and I, I think that condition right. might have been fulfilled today. Conditional to pause, yeah. yeah, of course, the famous conditional pause that everyone keeps quoting. What's your take on it? No crystal ball, no nothing like that. What are you seeing with boots on the ground in both the States and Canada? Yeah, I think to, to address the real estate market in both of those geographies, I, I take it a step up and kind of think about the economic picture first, because the economic picture is going to dictate where interest rates go from here. And we know that interest rates are, you know, very interconnected with residential real estate because of, you know, what its impact on mortgages. So in Canada, I think across the board, obviously they've been very aggressive with their tightening policy, both the Fed and the Bank of Canada, not unexpected. They've been very obvious and blatant about their intentions. I think you know, they they are a little bit nervous to lose credibility if they stop too soon, because if they let inflation, which seems by all indicators to be getting under better control than, let's say, six months ago, uh, it's trending the right direction, let's say. I don't think the job is done. I think that there's, you know, the reason they're using words like temporary pause and or, you know, if necessary, we'll keep doing this is to maintain a level of credibility opposite the market, because I think if you look at how equity markets and bond markets have looked at the world, that they're more on the, on the side of their stopping sometime soon, right? Equity markets have rallied, the yield curve has has uh, changed over time as well to reflect the expectation of of lower interest rates. Why all that crap matters? As it, sorry, I don't know if I can say that on air. Why all that stuff <laughs> matters as it relates to real estate is you know the obvious reason in residential real estate individuals require mortgages and mortgages are a direct correlation to interest rates. So what we're seeing, I guess, and what I'm seeing, uh, I'll speak for myself at the moment in Canada is I think that we're probably further toward uh, being finished than the U.S. I think the U.S. will likely have a more aggressive tightening program if need be. I think my prediction at the risk of uh, being outdated in like a month (laughs) <laughs> is that they'll they'll probably stop and the, and that they've stopped. Uh, our economy, I think, is a little more sensitive to interest rate increases due to you know our sort of household debt ratios and the amount of real estate people uh, exposure that the banks have and individuals have. So naturally, you're getting the same impact that the Fed is achieving just with less interest rates, uh, less interest rate increases than maybe the Fed has to to get the same impact. So that's going to that's gonna manifest itself slightly differently in both markets. So in Canada, if I had to guess today, I'd say we're in about the fifth inning of what, what I define as the trough of the real estate market. I, I don't think that it gets materially worse from here. I think that people have priced in a recession. Like six months ago, I would have said it's going to be a deep and dark recession. Today, I probably think there's a chance it'll be a bit shallower. Um, if you talk to any of the banks, they'll tell you that the most important thing to whether people pay their mortgages and the real estate market stays stable is 
the employment rate. And, you know, like generally speaking, the last thing that you don't pay is your mortgage. You'll cut everything else before you, 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 um, you know, you don't pay for your shelter. So as long as we can avoid a very deep and dark recession, which it looks increasingly like that will be the case, I feel like we're kind of halfway through this. So I don't expect a meteoric rise back in Canada to where we were in 2020, you know, in late 2021, early 2022. But I do expect to, to see our market find its footing and then, you know, slowly start to stabilize and, and maybe start trending in the right direction for, for real estate investors. That would be my prediction. And, and when I say this, I'm, I'm speaking most about what I expect for Southern Ontario primarily, because mm-hmm. that's where I'm sort of most well-versed to answer that question. Because, you know, we have a more diverse economy than other parts of Canada, so I can't speak exactly to what's going to happen in Calgary or Edmonton, but, you know, I'm pretty confident that in Ontario, we're probably going to find our footing shortly, in, in my mind. Great insights. I mean, that's that's good news. I mean, I'm sure you're well aware Vancouver and Toronto skew all the data points for stuff across the country, right? So if we, you know, we were the ones that took the biggest dip, if we can start to get a little more back to, you know, a normal market, I think the rest of the country will will likely follow suit. I, I agree with you. If I were to distill this uh, to, to a couple of variables, I think that as we pointed out, the market's very interest rate sensitive. Mm-hmm. Most highly priced Canadian markets uh, are dealing with, we're dealing with an affordability, affordability issue at a time when, when mortgages were accessible, right? So now higher interest rates are just diminishing that affordability even further. So I don't know that we're going to find our way back as quickly because interest rates aren't going to go back to a quarter point, right? They're going to kind of probably sit around three, three and a half maybe from where they are today, they'll gradually start decreasing over the course of two years. But what that means is that accessibility will start returning to the market in 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 uh, a more moderate fashion. And then you'll start to see that trend upward. And I think that the more, and even within our markets today, like if you get behind the numbers, which we spend a lot of time doing, you know, a lot of times the, the newspaper headlines are like, you know, 22% down. That might be accurate peak to trough but you know if you if you think that we were at a peak that was slightly artificial because interest rates were i don't know free right (laughs) and uh you had a lot of demand pile into a short period of time so i I think we can all accept that the pandemic conditions made the real estate market accelerate to a level that it probably shouldn't have been in the first place so if you took that artificial peak and then marked it down to this artificial trough where we've never before seen 400 basis points of increases in nine months uh, yeah, you're going to have a massively wide dip, and and that's what they keep referencing. But if you break down where the most of the damage is occurring, it's in the least affordable parts of the market, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the condo market, for example, relative to the low-rise market in a place like Toronto, low-rise is uh, the gap, generally speaking, in a healthy market was much wider than it had ever been, right? So condos average probably a million bucks. That same single detached home was one point six or whatever that number was on average. That $600,000 gap is a big affordability gap. So even as interest rates began to accelerate, you saw a lot less activity and a lot more meaningful of a price drop at the high end of that market, that $1.6 million range than you did at the $1,900,000, mm-hmm. range. So when you start to break out the average number and start looking at the composite parts, 
you see a very different story. I'm not suggesting by any means that it's healthy in terms of on a on a on an absolute basis, but maybe a healthy correction. Yeah. Right. And and I think it's important to accept that as an investor because anything you do in real estate should never be for the course of a year or two, even in some cases. Right. right. It could be opportunistic that two, you know, might be your your exit point or a year might be your exit point. But a lot of times you should have a business plan to be in it for a bit of a longer term. In which case, if you start looking at data on the on 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 a longer term average, you know it doesn't paint as bleak a picture as maybe people might think today. Yeah, yeah, great yeah, point. Yeah, it is funny. Like you got the you know popularization of the idea that real estate always goes up, and and the reality is over the long term horizon, absolutely. But people are very you know short sighted in thinking that, especially given we saw a blow off in prices in the GTA in twenty as recent as twenty seventeen. And, you know, so if people are expecting to make a quick gain, which is one of, and one of the things you mentioned in our first conversation was the difference between investing and speculating. Um, so, you know, given that, that difference and, and sort of the whole range of outcomes and your market outlook that you just mentioned, how are you making decisions as an investor, an active investor in the market right now? And, and how would you advise other operators or investors or developers to be acting in sort of this new world or the new economy that we're going to be dealing with for the next two to five years? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'll tell you how we look at the world and, and you know, it's just one perspective. So by no means is it the right one necessarily. It's just how we see Seems it. Seems to be doing pretty good. Yeah, for you guys, it, so. does, it, does, <laughs> it does okay. But um, I think, you know, we start with the macro first, right? And I think, you know, the reason we specifically invest uh, in Southern Ontario, as I reference Canada, and we can talk about what drives us market decisions in the US. But in Canada, we, we're 18 years old. And for 18 years, we've been investing in Southern Ontario and really nowhere else as it relates to development. And all along, I've had like, you're missing out. Like, what, why aren't you in Calgary? People are killing it. And we've had our reasons and it's proven to be good reason. So we start with the macro and, and I, we still believe that there's just a fundamental scarcity of housing. And, you know, there's a debate every day. Is it the demand side, you know, too too many foreign investors or too many speculators and or is it a lack of supply, right? Land and is the green belt too big? And like, you know, you can there's merit to all of these arguments, but they all really sum up to the fact that there is a huge imbalance between the supply of available housing and what we need. When you deal with such an imbalance that is not easily corrected, it, it tends to as you guys said, even, you know, over time, you'll see that price trend stable and, and usually upward trending, right? So the way we see the world in development is we're never buying something thinking about today's market. Like development, investing in development is a forward-looking mechanism by nature. Because if I buy a piece of land today between approvals and sales and marketing and building something of scale... It's going to take me four years or five years before somebody moves into one of these things. So we have to think about what does the market look like five years from now? And of course, nobody has that crystal ball to tell you exactly how it's going to look. But we can look at all of the macro trends. And when you when you sit there and say, okay, well, there's this many people coming in and there's only this ability to create, you know, homes. We have infrastructure constraints. You know, the government came out with this 1.5 million homes over 10 years. I think the most we've ever built is 40,000. 
and yeah. and and that's like ever yeah. and that strained our infrastructure to such a degree that you know costs went up in you know more than i've ever seen right like 20 percent year over year so sure we could almost triple that output and then do it 10 straight years but but it's obviously not very likely so given the what's required from a housing perspective and our industry's ability to actually generate it on a practical level that imbalance i think is going to drive some form of recovery in the market uh if you're investing in development and when i define recovery i want to be very specific if interest rates stayed where they were and people's wages stayed where they were we may never see 2021 levels again but as i pointed out you still need houses to either buy or rent houses dwellings i'll call them whether they're condos whether they're homes and if nobody's selling or building them you're going to see a correction in the cost structure right that infrastructure that was all of a sudden so strained everybody's going to be twiddling their thumbs because you're not building anything and then you're going to see an adjustment you'll start seeing margins that make sense again because we need to deliver housing as an industry so all of this to say that we have to take a longer term view of the world we look at the macro and then how we manage our risk is on the acquisition you got to buy things that you feel comfortable with their pricing today right so when you look at your underwriting and you look at what i'm paying for a piece of land I have to be pretty comfortable within the context of my land as a percentage of cost, as a percentage of what my rev real revenues are today to feel that I'm still within a range that makes me comfortable. And then I have to structure that acquisition intelligently. I can't go and buy something and put an 85% mortgage on it that's ticking away at 7.5%. And then if the market doesn't come back in a year or two or three, now I'm sitting there saying, holy crap, I, I got this meter ticking and now I got to refinance it. And who knows where i am and how much cost i've added to my structure if on the other hand i go in and i buy something and i can negotiate with a vendor of uh, a vendor take back mortgage for example with an interest free period or something that will allow me to have the luxury of time and flexibility then my belief in the macro whether that's a year 2 3 or 5 i'm likely to be in a position where i can just worst case scenario not get blown out of the water and hold on to that land uh for a time that it does make sense to go out and move ahead with the development. Yeah, I love that. Really really good points. I mean, we we preach that same stuff all the time, right? It's you got to go back and look at the numbers. There's there's still good deals to be had on the topic Actually, of Sorry, yeah, before you before you get into the next question, there we've seen just for our listeners, I I've actually seen like I've been tracking the mentions of VTB or vendor yeah. take back on the Toronto Real Estate Board for the past 2 years and seen a 300% increase in sellers offering vendor take back. So, you know, even for a small cap investor, you're starting to see it and we saw this in the 90s housing correction as well where banks weren't lending, credit constriction was really the primary problem that people were bumping up against in investing. Go out and look for those deals like you're saying. Like it's an excellent strategy to be approaching sellers with a vendor take back, especially given the capital gain structure in Canadian real estate right. For now. sure. Yeah. For sure. So getting creative, right? Yeah. Like and 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 you know, to the point you were just about to make, they There are deals to be had, you know, when the tech bubble blew up there were deals to be had. When the financial crisis happened, there were deals to be had. In fact, uh I have personal experience with folks who were at the time in 2008-9 at Bear Stearns at, you know, uh UBS, some some of our clients actually, who were at the, you know, pinnacle of that CDO CLO space. They all got gassed and then literally 
you know, two days later had billions of dollars of sovereign fund money where they could go out and buy things for pennies on the dollar because the market overreacted, right? So the market overreacted because there's all kinds of factors that drive that market, including the emotion, the fear, and, and other practical factors. And then they came in and said, well, we understand this stuff. There's good deals. I'm going to ignore the noise out there and understand in the fundamentals of credit markets in that case. So very similarly, we're looking at the fundamentals of the real estate market and we're saying, I just got to be careful. Like, I don't want to just throw my money at anything. I got to be smart about how I do it, but I certainly shouldn't be afraid to get into the market at this time for the right deal. It is funny when you examine that from a retail investor perspective, because like I've always said, the higher price gets, the more risk there is below you. Like there's more downside below you and less opportunity above you. And the lower price gets, there's less risk below you and more opportunity above you. Yet uh, January and February, 2022, everybody wanted to buy real estate. And it's this absolute mania, completely frenzied and everybody's rushing in. There's no risk. Real estate only goes up. And then two months later it crashes and we're now down probably, like you said, in some of these you know peak to trough stats, 20% in some markets. And you can't find people to buy real estate in a lot of cases. People are like, and, and it goes back to that Buffett quote, right? Be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. The, the best indicator of mass investor behavior is looking at mutual fund industries, inflows and outflows, because mm-hmm. they're perfectly liquid. Like real estate has a lot of friction. So it's not a good indicator of how people emotionally react because some people are just like, well, I would, except I'm I can't, yeah. right? I'm stuck. Yeah. Whereas you can hit a sell button on a mutual fund, no problem. So if you look at those, it's literally the funniest thing in the world, the most counterintuitive thing in the world, because it sort of shows you mass psychology. As mentality. Relates, yeah, like yeah. You, you'll see when the markets are absolutely on fire, it's the record level of inflows that go into mutual funds. <laughs> yeah. And when the markets are getting absolutely destroyed, Everyone's it's the most the helpful, out. Yeah, right? Exactly, so yeah. I mean, it, easier said than done. You know, people experience, you know, investing psychological and emotional and people's livelihoods and money are, are not something that they can necessarily easily disconnect their emotions from. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think we all know that. But that's where you need to kind of seek advice and, and go out there and try to overcome your fear. Right. Like you yeah. might have that fear emotionally. Go talk to some experts. Talk to, you know, listen to this podcast. Like talk to people who can give you a bit of perspective and hopefully you can find opportunities. I mean, I think it goes back to what we were saying before we started recording, right? VTBs and distressed properties and all these things that are popping up as buzzwords now, right? Forced appreciation being advertised in pre-condos. Like you can't do that kind of stuff. But I think that goes back to, you circle all the way back and we just did an episode of this covering the monetary policy and the complete crash in consumer confidence, right? Consumer confidence is down at the same lows that it was back in March of 2020 when, you know, shit hit the fan and the world closed down. How is that possible that we're back there already? And we see consumer confidence head that way. As you said, you know, more liquid stuff. We see mass exoduses from there. And I can personally tell you anecdotally, and I know that the two guys sitting to my right can agree, we've seen... A, a major influx in activity in the past few weeks, but there's so many people still sitting on the sidelines, trying to time the market, waiting it out. Right. And, and it's, it's funny because now that all of this stuff, which, which, you know, a lot of the financial markets and real estate market, and we'll throw the credit market in there too, are essentially designed to keep the average person in the dark a little bit. Right. We've seen that with all the movies that have come out from, Wolf of Wall Street to the new Madoff documentary, right? Keep the public in the dark and and whatever. But it's funny because I think it's times like this, 2008, 2017, and now 
where light is shed on these industries, people start to think they understand things and start to act accordingly. And then, but they're not acting the right way right now. Yeah, not yet. I mean, firstly, I think today, every year that goes by with with the resources that are more available, the way information is disseminated, like for example, this podcast, right? Like, I mean, the, the, people get information differently and it's not controlled by a few gatekeepers. So I think people can educate themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal view is that, you know, the way right now, again, there's an emotional aspect to it. And I don't mean to sound arrogant or disrespectful when I say this, but we have a, we're probably one of the best at this in the country. We have 90 people who work here, all of whom are smarter than me. And none <laughs> of us can predict the bottom or the top yeah. ever, right? Like it's just a fool's errand. So it's not even part of our strategy. Like we don't even, it's not like we sit there going, because, you know, I've answered this question a lot because we're still very active. Of course. So yeah. people, the first thing people say is like, well, okay, well, why aren't you pausing? And how come, you know, and I go, well, the people that are pausing. We run a business. What are, yeah, we, what and, are we doing? <laughs> and the people that are pausing out there that are professional investors, if you think that they're all sitting there in a boardroom being like, okay, we're just going to wait for the bottom. And, and then we'll we're, wait another couple of weeks. That's not what's happening. There's, pushing it. There's yeah. all kinds of constraints businesses in, in asset management have that, you know, you wouldn't, we won't get into them today, but that's not what's driving their decision. So our view of the world is you can't talk, you can't predict the bottom or the top. You are much better off to try to take a longer term view, structure yourself so that you can, if you needed to, right? We were talking before the podcast even started. You can, you can buy something with a business plan in and out in two years. Let's say you're buying a house and renovating it and, and flipping it. But you need to have a plan B in case you need to hold it for three, four, or five years. So the point being is that when we look at deals today, we're, we're focusing on five and 10 year timeframes and we're creating a structure that's favorable enough to us that if we absolutely had to, we would just wait it out. Now, if you're wrong about the macro, then all bets are off, obviously. Like, you, you, you know, if, you, if all of a sudden I think Toronto's going to, you know, always have housing scarcity and population is going to grow more than our ability as an industry to create enough dwellings and that gets totally turned over and all of a sudden there's a net migration out of the city and we're way oversupplied, then you're in trouble. But then you're also a bad investor. Like, you know, there's no fail safe to making bad decisions, but you got to get the macro right. And then from there, it all becomes a little more mechanical if you have a longer term view. Mm-hmm. And I think bad decisions can be made as, you know, a good decision can turn into a bad decision if the market dictates it so. But you just Agreed. said, right, go with plan A, have plan B, hell, even have plan C if plan B doesn't work out. I want to circle back to something we were talking about before when you mentioned building uh, and the scarcity of housing. What are your thoughts on Bill 23? Do you think that is going to change things? What can small cap investors do? I mean, obviously, it's probably not something that Greybrook would play in, um, but it opens the door for a lot of smaller cap investors to play in that development space and sure. to do the same things that Greybrook's doing, increase density, add value. Yeah, I, I so Bill 23... Kind of leading up to Bill 23, the provincial government, the Ministry of of Municipal Affairs and Housing, ran an entire process to try and get private sector uh, input. And and they tapped uh, Jake Lawrence, who's uh, one of the vice chairs of Scotiabank, I believe, to run that. And, And I was one of the contributors. So I was involved in sort of 
all so we're talking to the right guy. Yeah, like I listen, we were on a, always on calls and getting a lot of feedback. And actually, the the government I thought did a fantastic job engaging the private sector. And Good. I think pro- previous administrations, like I re- I recall, um, you know, after the fair housing plan, having a meeting with at the time. Uh, the administration and them asking a bunch of questions. And I was like, well, these would have been great questions like before you put the fair housing plan. But (laughs) that's neither here nor there. But all of this to say that I thought they did a great job engaging uh, the development community and just the private sector in general. And then what I read when Bill 23 came out and in fact, when the task force's recommendations came out, I thought, wow, if you could do 20% of this, it'll make an impact, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go out and say it. Like, I think what the current provincial government is doing is they're being very aggressive. Like, they 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 have their eye on the ball and saying we need to build 1.5 million houses in 10 years. Now, whether they can do it or not, forget it. But it's a it's a motherhood statement, like a goal that they put out there, and they are doing things, saying, you know what, I hear you, but this is what we need, so we're going to move forward with it. So I think that more than ever in my career, I've seen this administration commit to building homes, which is you know, likely going to solve the problem. Yeah. Now, to your question on how this benefits individual investors, I think a lot of what I saw in Bill 23 isn't really going to move the needle as much as they'd like. Like in a perfect world, it would. However, it's never a perfect world and it involves multiple layers of government and also other stakeholders who may not see the world the same way. So you may have a policy that says we need to do this at the provincial level and then a municipality that has different views of the world. Uh, and that municipality, it, it, they have jurisdictional control, right? So there's going to be friction there. And I don't know that we'll get exactly where we want to go. But the one thing that I did see that we can really not take advantage of as a, as a big investor of scale is this idea of adding density to sort of laneway housing and being able to intensify single properties. And I think that that could have the biggest impact, truthfully. So when you ask me, do I think there's an opportunity for the individual investor? I think they may have the largest opportunity. Love that. Because because if you look at Europe, a lot of older cities, they've taken a different pathway to intensification. It's less about high rise in a core. The middle, the missing middle. Exactly. We don't have. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you fly over, you know, London or Paris and it's just like the missing middle everywhere, except it's not missing. It's it's right there. It's It's just middle. All all of those cities. So I think that with that, you know, historically why that hasn't been available to us is a very restrictive planning regime. Um, And, you know, it's just a different planning philosophy. So I wouldn't say it was right, right or wrong, but certainly this can help us solve the problem. And I think that removing the barriers, because, you know, you want to do a home reno, you want to cut down a tree, it takes you like two years. Like it's ridiculous. You can't build anything, even at a large scale, small scale. It's all very cumbersome. By removing those restrictions and creating kind of a clear pathway to being able to achieve those entitlements and then move forward and, and provide some of that type of housing, I think there's a huge opportunity. And I actually said this in in one of the calls. I said, you know, because they introduced the idea. And again, I'm looking at it from my perspective as a large scale investor slash developer. I was like, well, that that if you want hundreds of thousands of homes, that's not going to do it for you in five years by doing it one by one by one by one. Right. Having said that, it's a combination of the two. Right. Enabling those those opportunities 
it'll be one by one by one by one times a thousand people or two thousand people that are building that are being, three that, that units are, into each other. Exactly right. Four thousand. Yeah, exactly. Between yeah. that and then some of the other parameters that they're trying to, you know, make le- or, or uh, create re- less red tape, as they say, for larger scale developers, housing will come in a combination of the two. And I'd venture to say that you'd probably have a better overall distribution of the right type of housing as well, mm-hmm. right? So you're not just having tall high rises everywhere, right? Um, you know, we, we encountered a situation last year with a property we own in, in, uh, just outside of Hamilton actually. And, you know, we were excluded from an urban boundary by the municipality. And, you know, I can talk about this now cause it's all been sort of more or less settled, but we were excluded from an urban boundary, which didn't make a lot of sense, um, because the province has established targets for municipalities for their densities. And it can't all come from intensification. So the way that the city of Hamilton looked at it, in our view, was a little bit flawed because they looked at their current boundaries and said, you know what? We can achieve these density targets with the urban boundaries that exist today. We don't need to expand them any further. The drawback to doing that is that you have less area, obviously, which means that to achieve those very high targets of people per hectare, you have to only intensify which means that the only format of housing you're going to have is super dense housing, right? Either tall condos or you're going to have semis and towns. And the idea of a single family home is like a foreign concept at this point. Well, to accommodate families, growth and demographic, you know, the, the composition of our demographics isn't uniform, right? So you need family type of housing, you need single family homes, you need small condos, right? So you need a little bit of everything. And that's why most municipalities choose a combination of the two which allows them to both expand the boundary and provide greenfield opportunities for lower density types of housing and at the same time intensify. Uh, and then the province, you know, kind of overturned that decision and is working with the city to try to create a better strategy. But this is all to say that, you know, policy it has, it, it has to start with policy, it, but it has limitations and I think that if everybody can get on at least a similar page, and I think we're at a good starting point, uh, we're going to make a dent. So there's no question over the next three or four years in particular, we will make a dent in, in sort of our housing affordability crisis, so to speak. Uh, and I do think that laneway housing and, and sort of single intensification opportunities will be a big part of that. Love it. Awesome. Last question. Um, the guy, I'm glad you mentioned Hamilton. The guy who approached you said he liked your car in Hamilton yeah. and uh, asked if you could give him some advice. Small cap investor yeah. out there. Um, he calls you up, sends you an email and says, hey, you know, I'm looking for an opportunity in the market right now. I've got 500 grand cash laying around and I think I can qualify for maybe one to two million in a mortgage. Yeah. What, uh, you know, me and all my small cap friends, what should we be doing? What are the opportunities for us beyond Bill 23 or including Bill 23? What are the opportunities for people like us in, in the market right now? I think that there is a... The market pull back to whatever level you believe, given what chart you're looking at, whether it's 11% or 20%, it's some version of more than zero, presents an opportunity. And again, Hamilton to me, no different than Toronto. When I talk about Toronto, sometimes I say Toronto, I really mean Southern Ontario, which is one ecosystem that has a very similar dynamic. Mm -hmm. I, I, I truthfully believe that this pullback provides people with an opportunity if they, you know, have the fortitude to go in and buy and and probably the strategy would be to rent and or add value and and just kind of 
I don't want to say flip, but an ability to kind of ultimately realize that value through a sale at some point in the future. You just have to be able to hold on, right? So yeah. what I'd say is now's a good time to buy. Don't wait for the bottom, but have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C, right? So you could go and buy something, fix it up. If the market's there for you, take the opportunity and make your money and walk away. If the market isn't there for you, you have a plan B, which is to rent it out and you might not be able to carry the full burden of, of your overhead cost, but you'll carry a significant amount of it. And you just have to know that you have the financial resources to be able to kind of wait it out and you're not going to get hurt. Like my, that, That's my true belief in this market because I do think the fundamentals are so strong that we will see some version of a recovery. And I don't mean, a re- I keep always qualifying this because when you say it, people just mean like- People jump on that. Yeah, and you're like, like well, I'm not saying we're going to be 25% yeah. up yeah. next year. That's not what I'm saying. That but would be insane. We yeah. don't want that. Yeah. Well, exactly. We saw what happened yeah. after that. That's exactly yeah. right. You guys have hit the nail on the head. It is a misconception that this industry and investors in the industry rely on it and or welcome it. Yeah. Like we sat there at times when we were selling homes and some of our projects that we had invested in, in the GTA for prices that were well above our, our underwriting. And you'd think that we were like high-fiving around the table. The first <laughs> thing we were doing is like, okay, well, how can we make sure our deposit structure is secure enough that we, you know, these people. It's probably more concerning than. It was than, more concerning than, yeah. and, and you, you make provisions and you try and, and, and protect yourself. So it wasn't. You're right to say that it's not like, it's not something we want. I think as an industry, it it benefits everybody. It benefits the buyers and renters, and it benefits the producers and investors if you just have a sustainable market. That's the word, sustainable. Yeah, Love it. Amazing. Let's call it. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks a lot. Always an amazing conversation. I was really grateful for that interview. I feel like I could have probably, maybe we should do this one time, like just just sit and chat with Sasha for like five hours, <laughs> but uh, just, just, just mic them up for, yeah, mic yeah, them up for hours. And yeah, I, I would listen to it to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if anybody's interested in investing in real estate with Graybrook, uh, you know, it's a much more passive approach. You can, you can tap in using your registered accounts as Sasha mentioned at the beginning of the, uh, the interview. So you can use your TFSA, RRSP, et cetera. Um, then reach out to info at graybrook.com or uh, reach out to us using our email in the show notes and we'll make an introduction. And you know, we'd, we'd be happy to uh, to connect you with, with them and you can get some exposure to just interesting projects that you know regular investors like us typically don't have opportunity to, to touch and feel. You, know, we, you and I love direct investing. Um, but a lot of our listeners, you know, we we talk about acknowledging the risk in the market. Some people aren't comfortable with the risk in the market. Some people maybe don't want to be buying because of the rates right now. There's a variety of reasons that somebody might be waiting on the sideline for a couple of years. And, and so it could be a decent place to park your cash while you're doing that. So um, I, I would definitely advise them to uh, to get connected to Graybrook if that's if you like the real estate asset and you don't and you don't want to own a house right now. Yeah, I I'd even I'd even go further and say if you like the real estate asset and you have mentioned the word passive in the same sentence as real estate uh because that is something that we have multiple conversations with people all the time about yeah, I want to, you know, I want to build up my portfolio up and until it's passive and whatever. And I'm I have to always be the the bearer of bad news and say, "Okay, well you've got a long 
long, bumpy road before your real estate empire turns passive. Unless you start investing with Greybrook and, and, you know, REITs and, and other much more passive opportunities. So just an interesting point there. Uh, you know, real estate nine times out of 10 is not passive. This is that one other time that it is. Anything else, Dan? I think we're good. Awesome. Okay, everyone, thanks so much for listening. As always, uh, we hope you enjoyed the show and got a ton of value out of listening to a guy like Sasha. Uh, rate us five stars, write us a review. And if again, if you want to chat with either of us, email in the show notes. We're pretty easy to get a hold of on social media. Let us know and uh, we're happy to even hop on a call. Until next time, thanks so much. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317 Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.